sisters, welcome back to She Is Becoming. We are a podcast of multi-generational women studying God's word together, dedicated to being transformed by the renewing of our minds. You can find our episodes on church history, doctrine, culture, and more on whatever podcast platform you typically use and on the Minnesota Grace Church app and website. And make sure that you follow our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so that you can get notifications when we post a new episode, which is every other Monday. And make sure that you follow us on Instagram at She Is Becoming Podcast so you can catch additional episode resources and engage with us on there. I am your co-host, Delaney. I am here in the studio today with Not Bev. My normal co-host. I'm here in the studio with a special person, though, that you all know. Ashley Kinsel. It's me. Yay. I'm, <laughs> I'm tapping on the table. Drum roll. I almost said Beth. I'm just so... Actually, <laughs> when, you about to. when we, when we um, started Bible study this year um, and I was introducing my co-leader, I said, this is my co-host. <laughs> I was like, I hate myself. This is my co-host for Bible study. I was like, this is my Bible study co-host. And they all looked at me and I was like, sorry, wrong place. And I was like, this is my co-lead. But thanks for coming on, Ashley. Thank you for having me. And hosting with me today. Um, Today, we are going to be talking with Amy Hall from Stand to Reason. Amy has an MA in Christian Apologetics from Biola University and currently works as a writer, editor, and podcast for Stand to Reason, where she explores culture, ethics, philosophy, and theology in light of the truth of the Christian worldview. Her goal is to help Christians truly grasp the fact that Christianity equals reality, giving them the confidence and ability to apply and live out this truth in every area of their lives so they may know, know, love, and serve Christ as whole people in the fullest way possible. You can hear more from Amy on Stand to Reason's STR Ask podcast. The Reality Conference is in November, November 10th and 11th. Um, They've come actually, I think, every year for the last three years. It's a fantastic conference. If you haven't gotten tickets, you definitely should. This year, um, their theme is Man versus Maker. Um, Man says, you're nothing special. You decide how to live. You do you. And this is way different than the story that the Maker tells you. And so we are going to be hearing from Amy more about the conference and if you haven't gotten your tickets, go get your tickets. Amy, told, we just recorded with Amy and she told us that she's actually going to be there like at her own table and it's going to be called Ask an Apologist. And so you can like prepare questions and just go up and ask her, which is, I mean, awesome. I'm totally going to like sleuth some questions. We should do, we should find hardest questions yes. in theology and apologetics. We'll hide behind a, behind a bush and <laughs> send some unassuming kid to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretend it's not us to be a kid. <laughs> Um, Well, let's get Amy on the show. Welcome to the show, Amy. We are so excited that you are going to be here next month, honestly, like in a couple weeks in November for the reality conference. So thanks for agreeing to come on She Is Becoming today. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conference. I can't believe how fast it's coming up. I know we've had this on the calendar for a little bit and I looked and I was like, oh, wow, reality conference is like two or three weeks away. So thanks for coming. Can you just start? uh, We just want to hear a little bit about the conference. So can you just tell us more about um, the reality conference this year and about the theme? Well, the theme this year, well, reality conference is a conference, an apologetics conference for youth. And this year, the theme is man or maker. That's that's our little catchphrase this season. And it's about the questions that every human being 
every one of us has to answer questions like, who are we as human beings? Where did we come from? What's gone wrong? What's the solution? How should we live? And as we're all asking these questions, the answers that we come up to these questions make up what's called our worldview. And your audience probably knows that word already. But right now, there are two major worldviews in our culture that are kind of competing with each other. And the first one, um, the, the story is that in the beginning, there was nothing. And then the Big Bang happened. And then there was a series of random events. And eventually, we came about. And uh, that's, that's where we came from. And then the second worldview starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we aren't an accident. We were created in God's image mm. with dignity and with value and with purpose. So you can see how this one core question, does God exist? Were we created? This, this core question leads to two completely opposite conclusions. And these conclusions have huge implications for how we live, uh, for all sorts of things, especially like on the controversies we're seeing in our culture right now. And choosing between these two worldviews isn't about what we like better. Mm. That's not what truth is about. We need to choose the one that's true. And so at our conference, what we're doing is we're looking at what we observe in the world and we're seeing which, which one matches reality. So Mm. that's the whole goal, which worldview matches what we find in reality. And I love the use of that word reality, like that this is what is real. Like this is what is around us. This is what we can see and what we can observe. Like this is what's true. And so I love even the way that you guys have thought through that wording. Well, and reinforcing the fact that reality, there's no, there's no bearing on whether or not we like reality. So we don't pick the worldview that we like. We, we pick right. what's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, that, and go ahead. Well, what, what's interesting is that a lot of people think that questions like this, major questions about life and the meaning of life, are all a matter of what we prefer. Because I think secretly they think there's no answer. So therefore, mm. I can have my answer. You can have your answer. What's true for me might not be true for you. But we just pick what we like. And so one of the hardest things that we have to it's a hard, one of the hardest things to get across to people in this culture is the idea that when we claim that Christianity is true, we're actually saying it's the same as saying that this table exists. It's We're talking about an aspect of reality that is objective for everyone. Mm-hmm. People have a hard time understanding that because it's so foreign to the way people think now. And I love that, like when we think about religion and even like spirituality I feel like we can get so in our head about it that even when like my friends uh, or not my friends my coworkers, like we have a lot of conversations around um, religion and they're very like new age new age and universalist Mm -hmm. and everything is just up in their head all the time and there's no bearing on what they do in their real life like it doesn't go from their head into what they do every day. Like it just kind of stays this like metaphorical, like thing, cloudy thing that they just think through all the time. And I love that Mm -hmm. even the word reality makes it so it's like, it's something that you do, something that you can touch, something that you can be a part of like today, right now in front of you. So I really appreciate that. And we can all share it. Because as you said, if you're all in your head, you are separated from other people. But when you're sharing 
you're you're all partaking in the same reality. That's where you find community and fellowship because you're you're around something real that you all share. Mm, absolutely. Will you talk us through, Amy? Like, what are some of the implications then for the world when we don't believe that God created us like for a purpose? Like, how do you kind of see this playing out in our culture today? Well, this this is such an important question because I think a lot of people haven't really thought through what the implications of these two separate worldviews are. And so not only are people who reject Christianity buying into these ideas that lead to bad consequences, but even Christians, since we live in this culture where we kind of take on some of these ideas by osmosis just because mm-hmm. they're all around us, and we haven't thought through where is that idea coming from. It's not coming from Christianity. It's coming from this other worldview. So it's important to think about what we think about the world and how we act and where those ideas are coming from. So the first one that comes to mind is that if there is no God, then there's no meaning. Right. We came from nothing. We're going to nothing. And ultimately, nothing matters at all. I mean, you can have your little things that give you happiness for a time. But ultimately, if we're all going to die and the universe is going to die, nothing matters in the ultimate sense. Now, people who truly believe this, and I, I think there are very few people who truly believe this, but but this, these are not happy people. <laughs> this is because we desire more. And the reason why we desire to have meaning is because there actually is meaning out there. Right Now, it, it would be really odd if there was something that human beings need like meaning that didn't exist. I mean, how, how would that even happen evolutionarily? That doesn't even make sense. Uh, but, but it is a reality that we need, we need meaning in order to continue on in our lives. So I don't think there's any coincidence that depression and suicidal thoughts are on the, the rise right now no. because people have this idea that there's no there's no ultimate meaning. We're not heading anywhere. Mm-hmm. And here's another implication from that. If there is no future, and, and by future, I mean if there's no eternity that we're heading towards, there's no real incentive to sacrifice for others. Oh, that's And so here's cool. what I mean by that. Yeah. If we, all we have is this life, we only have this life, what are you going to do? You're going to get what you can while you can. Right. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to give up your money, your time, your um, your sanity, even if you if you have to work really hard to help someone. Why would you do those things? You right. have to take what you can get. Yeah, it sounds really narcissistic, honestly. Like you're creating a a worldview for yourself that's like plays into our own selfishness. And this is what we're seeing, right? I, I don't know if you guys have seen. There have been a bunch of TikTok videos and. Uh, and things like that where women will go on there and they'll talk about how glad they were that they're, they never had children mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're single and they, they can get up whenever they want and they can do whatever they want all day and nobody has any demands on them and what a great life they have. And we look at that and we think, you know what? You sound really empty. <laughs> That's so sad yeah. because they're trying to get what they can now and, w- and they're going to lose everything. I mean, it's just like Jesus said, you know, those who try to save their life will lose it. If you are trying to hang on to everything you have instead of sacrificing yourself, you know, um, taking up your cross, 
giving up your life for others, you're going to end up with nothing. And I think we are we are seeing this happen out there with these these women who who are proudly not having children. Um, we're seeing people. Oh, here's another example. Iceland has very proudly said that they have eradicated Down syndrome. Now, what they mean by that is not we've we've ended the incidence of Down syndrome. We've cured it. We're not. We don't have any more problems with that. No, what they're saying is they they find out who is pregnant with a Down syndrome child, and they have an abortion. Mm. So they have put to death. I, I think there's very few, I mean, it's, I can't remember if it's 90% or whatever, of all of the children with Down syndrome. Now, this is an example of I don't want to sacrifice. I mean, and granted, it's, it can be hard if, to have something unexpected happen where people will have more demands on you. That's hard. But as Christians, we have an incentive to do what's right because we have an entire eternity ahead of us. We might give up our time now. We might have difficulties now, but the reason why we can keep going is that we know this isn't the end. Hmm. We're not going to lose everything if we give up everything now. Well, and the gospel offers us uh, a response to to who we are. I mean, when we understand our our true sinful condition, there's no way that we can rationally proclaim that we're better than someone else or we're more deserving than someone else. The gospel is the great neutralizer. And so now right. not only um, do we have a, a reason to sacrifice, but we have a reason to look at our fellow man made in God's image and say, I'm no better than you. So how do we do this thing together, uh, submitting to Christ and out of reverence for Christ? And it sounds like right. this lack of sacrifice really leads to a lack of morality, which would make sense if we, if the gospel is the ultimate sacrifice, which we know from scripture that it is, that that would infiltrate the morality in our society. How do you, Amy, see um, this kind of like lack of sacrifice and just all these things that you've said, like lead to this kind of like even even this lack of meaning? Like, how do you see this? What does this mean for rea- for morality for people in our society? Well, the biggest, it, this is, you are so way ahead of me because that's exactly where I was going to go next. Oh, sorry. <laughs> nice. If there's no, <laughs> if there's no God, there is no objective morality. Mm. There's no standard that, that we can all appeal to when we're trying to resolve questions about morality. So what you end up with, you have preferences. So I have my preferences. Someone else has their preferences. And for a while, for a while in our culture, People thought that would solve everything. So there'll be no more fights if we just say, oh, this is just true for me, and that might be true for you. But what's happened is, if we are all making up our own morality, and there's no standard that we can appeal to when we have conflicts over what is truly moral, the only thing left to adjudicate between those preferences is an act of power. Mm. That's all you can do. You can go out and riot. You can go out and try and force people in some way to to follow. You can yell at them. You can cancel them. You can do all these different things because there's no way, there's no common standard for us to appeal to. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing chaos out there. We're seeing people no longer reasoning about what's good. We're just seeing people judging other people and 
canceling them and and trying to exclude them from society because there's no way to talk about morality if there's no objective morality. I think that's so, so fascinating because, I mean, you look at Nancy <laughs> Piercy's Love Thy Body. She makes this argument very strongly that ultimately someone is going to be the authority when it comes to life and what we do with our bodies and what we do with morality. Someone is going to Someone's going to have that power, and yet in a culture that seems to absolutely rage against power and authority and structures and systems of oppression, they don't understand that they themselves are becoming the oppressors because they refuse to accept that objective morality comes from the Word of God. Yeah, it, it, this, is a, this is a huge thing. This relativism causes so many problems, and it just, it really doesn't make sense, and and this is something about um, that I mentioned about our conference where we're looking at what we see out there and we're comparing it to these two worldviews. Now, I think deep down we all know that there is objective morality. And the reason why I say that is because when you start asking people questions, it, it'll come out. So, for example, um, think about it. If, if there's no objective morality and everything is relative, or, or maybe someone might say, only society, society decides what's right and wrong. Well, nobody really believes that because when you have someone like, like Hitler, the other nations judged, judged him. They judged the philosophy. Mm. They judged the Nazis after the war because there was a higher moral law. They couldn't just say, oh, this is what our society said, and, and then we all just were fine with that. That's not right. how it works because we, we know deep down that there is something higher if there's no objective standard, there's no way to improve morality. There's no, there's no uh, getting better because it's all just preferences. There's no possibility to be a reformer in a society. There's no way to explain someone like Martin Luther King Jr. who came in and, and did all this work for civil rights. Because if morality is just determined by society, then what Martin Luther King was doing was wrong. He was going against morality by challenging society. Mm -hmm. But we all know that, no, he was actually trying to hold them accountable to a higher objective standard. So Christianity can make sense of this, but a godless worldview cannot make sense of this. Mm -hmm. mm. That's awesome. This is making me like really excited <laughs> for the conference. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I could listen to you talk about this forever. I'm just over here nodding and looking at Ashley like, oh my gosh, writing everything down. <laughs> so, wow. Okay. Oh, I've got a few more even. Oh, I can imagine. Um, I can imagine. Oh my goodness. Um, well, do you have any kind of like just concluding thoughts on just this whole conversation that we've been having about society, morality, um, these negative implications? Well, um, let me just throw out a couple more quickly yeah. um, so we people can be thinking about them. Um, one of them is the idea that if there is no God, there is no human equality or right. Uh, this is because if we are made in the image of God, we all share that in common, but there's nothing else that we as human beings share in common. Mm -hmm. if, if our value is determined by what we do, then there are all sorts of different levels of that. So there's no, there's no actual equality of value in the world. So what happens is um, our value then is determined by things like our abilities, our skin color, our sex, whatever it is. And that is how you end up with people who uh, 
um, can use their power, again, to take away people's rights, to take away, um, uh, you know, just to deny people's humanity. Right. This is the heart it, of intersectionality. Like, the, well, you know, the more well, this, <laughs> the more uh, disadvantages I can stack up, the, the more privileges I've actually earned. Well, yeah. And, and this is but see, this is this is a thing that people care about. And there's no way for them to explain it outside of a worldview where God exists. Mm-hmm. There's just no way to explain it. So this is another way you can you can challenge people and say, look, how do you explain this idea of equal rights and, and human equality? Uh, you mentioned our body. You mentioned Love Thy Body, which is a great book. If there's no God, our bodies have no meaning. They have no purpose. Right. We just developed randomly, which means. We can use our body parts however we like because there's nothing they were meant for. Right. They so give us we no can... clues to who we are or, or exactly. what Exactly. Exactly. And we can we can cut body parts off to try and change our sex. We can use our body parts in whatever way that gives us pleasure for a time. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing people misuse their bodies in this way, and we're seeing the consequences. Uh, we're seeing the dramatic rise in, in transgenderism and in alternate uh, sexualities. We're seeing trans- transition regret. We're seeing out of wedlock, wedlock birth, which is devastating for children um, who need a mother and a father. We're seeing people devastated by hookup culture. We're seeing all of these things as a result of people not believing their bodies have any meaning or purpose. But here's one that people really may not have thought of, and this, this will be my last one, I promise. <laughs> um, if there's no God, then there is no redemption. Mm. Wow. And here's the problem. Everyone out there right now is canceling people who say the wrong thing. I mean, the rules are changing all the time. They're going back in time and finding things from the past. People are getting completely destroyed because of something wrong that they did. There is no hope for redemption Mm, in the culture because there is no justice that can cover the sins that we've committed. So there's no way back for people. And here is where Christianity can step in. We as Christians can step in and say, you have in the culture who have been rejected, there is hope for you because there is a God and he sent his son to die to pay the justice that was needed to be paid in order to be forgiven and to have our sins completely removed. And we will accept you and because God has, has forgiven you. And this is a huge implication. Um, so because we know there is a God, because we have his word, we know our purpose. We know the way we should live. We know where to find grace and forgiveness when we sin. We have meaning in our lives. And more importantly, we have God in our lives. So you can see that there are serious differences between these two views. So it's completely understandable why we're having this huge culture war right now. There are there's such a huge divide between the two groups of people in our culture right now. I mean, the two major groups. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is amazing. I I'm even thinking to, um, in the old Testament, the Hebrew word for, um, foreigner or alien is uh, gare. And in throughout the old Testament, which a lot of people who haven't read the Old Testament think that it's, you know, super violent and all of this, like, and that God is this super mean and harsh God. But when you look at how God talks about gear or foreigner, 
it is always um, telling the Israelites to bring them in, to love those marginalized groups. And so um, I just think, man, like scripture has always been for those kind of people too. And that's just such a different thing than we hear like in our culture today. So I love how you, you brought that up, the redemption. I mean, I I think I got to quote that. (laughs) It's good. Well, and Amy, you've, you've been threading this needle a little bit. One of the things that I find fascinating, uh, and I want to pivot a little bit for a second. One of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, when suffering is rampant, I think that's, that is one of the places where the gospel shines most beautifully because we have an answer mm-hmm. for, for why suffering exists and, and for where we can find hope and redemption. Um, so the gospel is this incredible hope to those who are suffering in culture. And yet for those of us who have been in the church, who have not been given the full counsel of God, who have kind of taken this worldview for granted, like we know it in our head, but we don't demonstrate it functionally, suffering hits and we're rocked because we realize, oh, I, I don't actually have, I don't actually, I can't actually articulate my worldview. I don't have a theology of suffering to Mm-hmm. sustain me in this moment. And so, you know, big passion of mine and, and something we've been talking a lot about as a church is um, just the deconstruction movement. My, my husband and I have both had experiences personally um, in deconstructing and reconstructing in our faith. And I know for me, um, you know, if we're going to talk about worldview, that means we have to talk about uh, the sufficiency of scripture, the reliability of scripture, like is the Bible true? And for me, that is just one of the inescapable realities that I may not like what this word says, because I don't understand it yet. But I can't deny Mm -hmm. that it's, it's true. It is true historically, archaeologically, um, emotionally, everything that, that I try to rationalize, it is true. Um, so I would love for you to walk us through uh, a few of your biggest evidences for the Bible's authenticity, because I think that is such a great place for us to anchor ourselves in when we don't like what we read, when we don't, when our flesh doesn't want to conform to it. Mm-hmm. Well, let me do, okay, I'm going to do a couple things here. First, um, my boss, Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason, he developed this, this summary of six reasons why we can believe the Bible is from God. So I'm going to go quickly through that summary, and then I'm going to zero in on two different, you know, aspects of that to give people a little more, uh, a little more detail in a couple of these areas. But um, what he, what he's developed is, is such a great way to remember what the six key things are. And what he does is he uses his hand as a reminder and he uses the fingers so he starts with a pinky, and the pinky uh, starts with a P, so it stands for prophecy. So the Bible has supernatural predictions. And I saw that that, that you had uh, someone talking about the, the Daniel prophecy, correct? Yeah. Not too long ago? Yeah, yeah, not too long ago. So we went, we went through all of that and talked about what has already been fulfilled and the connection to the gospel was awesome. So that's an example of fulfilled prophecy. You also have things like Isaiah 53 that— completely describes Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I mean, there's the entire Messiah. I mean, it's all predicted, everything. So you see the supernatural prediction. And then you come to the ring finger, and the ring finger reminds you of marriage. And so think unity. And the Bible has supernatural unity. It's a unified story from beginning to end. And I'm going to come back 
to this one and talk about it when we get to the end. But let's go on now to uh, the big finger. And this reminds you that the Bible answers the big questions. It has supernatural insight into questions like, who are we? Why are we the way we are? How can we be helped? What's wrong with the world? Uh, who is God? All these questions. So it has supernatural insight. And then we come to the index finger. And you remember, it's an index to history. And what we find when we look at the Bible is that it is a reliable record of supernatural events. We see, as you mentioned, archaeology. We see that the Bible is trustworthy and and the things that it describes about the history. And this is an important thing because when you think about most religions, a lot of them are some guy had a vision <laughs> and then he tells the vision to others and then people follow him. But there's no way really to 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 verify that. It's just it people resonate with it and then they go with it. Judaism and Christianity are based on historical events. You have the Exodus, you have the entire building up of the nation of Israel, and then you have Jesus. And because we are centered on historical ways that God interacted with the real world, we have ways to look at it and see that it is indeed true. It's something that's outside of our minds that we can look at objectively in order to find out if it's true. So this is a really important one. So we've got the the pinky, the ring finger, the big finger, the index finger. And now we come to the thumb. And this one comes from, I don't know if you saw Gladiator. This probably isn't historically accurate, but... Um, <laughs> I know where you're going. The, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> <laughs> the emperor uh, would lift his thumb up to say the gladiator should live, and then he would turn it down for the gladiator to die. And so with the thumb up, that reminds you that the that the Bible has life impact. It has supernatural impact on people's lives. It changes people. We've all seen this happen. Uh, when people believe it, when they trust in Jesus, when they follow what it says, we see lives change. And then finally, if you put all of the fingers together into a fist, it reminds you that the Bible has supernatural sur survival mm, because so good. people have been trying to shut it down forever. You know, back in the French Revolution, they thought, oh, this is all going to go away. We can put an end to all of this. It's still here. The Bible is still oh, here after all this time. Chained. And it packs a punch. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. So there's a quick summary. And I'm going to I'm going to zero in on a couple of those now. Um, one of them is kind of a bigger picture. And then one of them is just a smaller thing that I find extremely fascinating that I don't think everybody has heard about yet because it's a fairly new argument. But um, so the first thing is and this is this is actually the thing that I find the most amazing about the Bible and speaks to me the most about its truthfulness and it's the unity. Because what you have, you have 66 books that were written over 1,500 years by about 40 authors, but they're all connected. There's one story from beginning to end, despite mm -hmm. the fact that all of these authors were in at different times had different uh, professions, had different views on things in different ways. But, but what you find is a completely unified story about God and about his Redeemer, Jesus. It all flows from the beginning to the end. It's not this disjointed thing. And to me, that speaks 
to a, the fact that there's a divine author. There's no way that something like this would happen. Now, there there could be other books where people add maybe wise sayings or, you know, I don't know. It's just a, a, a set of wisdom literature. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is telling a story of history. We talked about Isaiah 53. Uh, another example would be the the tabernacle, which was created specifically to point people to Jesus in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, what it says in Hebrews is that Moses was given a particular pattern in the tabernacle to point to the sacrifice that Jesus would make. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was a fulfillment of that. So you see all of these connections, you see all these fulfillments of themes, of types, of predictions, all these things happening in one story. So um, that, that to me is a huge deal. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. Like even how it is written, like the complexity and, and the connections that you're talking about points to its accuracy. Mm-hmm. I had never thought about a meta narrative as an evidence for its accuracy. That's really profound. And think about even the like. Let's say God was completely made up. Think about the fact that His character is completely consistent all the way through. Mm-hmm. Now I know some people might say oh, the God of the Old Testament is this and that. But the reality is when you look at this carefully in context, you can see that God has not changed. They've all understood him the same way. And that, that is miraculous. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how anyone could do that over 1,500 years if, if it were not true. Right. And I think when you read the Old Testament books as a whole, like right. in one sitting, or you read all, you read larger chunks, you see that even more. Like, I think people just take like these little pieces and they, they're like, okay, this is evidence for how God is some kind of abuser or whatever. But if you read the whole book, you will see like mm-hmm. he's given chance after chance, you will see his mercy. And I, I'm in um, Bible college right now. And one of my assignments has been to read each Old Testament book all in one sitting. So you guys can oh, um, wow. pray for me. It's been um, <laughs> a beast. Um, I'm trying not to fall asleep in some of them, if I'll be honest. But um, and, chapters of building the tabernacle. There. Yeah, it's been a little rough, but it's been fantastic because even the parts of the Old Testament that I know kind of thought okay maybe God is painted more negatively in this book than the rest Um, when I read it as a whole I still found that God's mercy overpowered all of the judgment that Mm -hmm. he brought and even the amount of chapters in the books his mercy there was more mercy in the amount of chapters and less judgment in the in the chapters like even the number so it was just very like it's been very interesting where I think people get kind of caught up with that but I love how you brought the care that his character is consistent oh that's that's amazing like that's something that and, you could and, just chew on and here's another thing to consider you know people dismiss judgment as being bad mm-hmm. but the reality is when we see judges who let people off the hook we get really mad at that judge I can think of a, a couple cases in the last decade or so where a judge let someone off the hook and people just lost it 
because they care about justice. We all care about justice until it's directed at us. Totally. Honestly. Come on. And God cannot, he cannot be good if he's not just, you know, that's exactly. not good if you are letting those things go. Well, and that's where relativism is, is so toxic in approaching scripture because, you know, we read the Exodus narrative and, and our hearts are going, but why did you have to kill all of their firstborn children? And we forget that the, the blood of, of the firstborn children of, of the Israelites was crying out and, and that God is, is giving this people after mercy upon mercy upon mercy, exactly what they have chosen for themselves. And, mm-hmm. and we have a hard time sitting in that because we make the mistake of going, well, if I were God, and that's where we've got to back all the way up and go, wait a second, like, what is, what is my worldview? You know, who is God? Who am I? And does he get to say what is good and just or not? I think that's a really important thing to bring up. There will be things in the Bible that we don't understand. And this is why it's important to to be convinced that it's true and to really trust that. Because what we need to do is spend the time to figure it out. We don't just dismiss it like that can't be true because I don't get it. We need to trust if this is true, then we need to submit to that. And maybe we don't understand it yet, but we just need to spend more time trying to uh, figure out what's going on here. Well, and you're you're perfectly headed right into one of our next questions that, that we want to cover. I mean, what, what do you say to the woman who finds herself in this trap of, you know, maybe she's struggling or deconstructing or maybe she's letting her feelings dictate her identity or drive facts about scripture? Like what, what do we say? Because we've all been that woman. We've all been that woman who's like, I don't like that. What do I do with it? When my flesh collides with the spirit in me, what do we say to that woman um, who uh, needs to to hear what's true and and obey it? Okay. Uh, I, I have something to say about this. Now, I still have one thing that I wanted to cover on the Bible thing. Is that is that okay? Or do you oh want me goodness. to answer this first? Yes, go back? please. <laughs> because this is so cool. I, I this 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 evidence of the the truthfulness of the Bible is is very interesting, and it's it's fairly new. I mean, I think people started talking about it in the last decade or so. But this one comes from the idea of whether or not they the writers are eyewitnesses. Hmm. And so um, this comes from a book called uh, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. And he, he kind of lays this out. It, originally, it was from, I think, Richard Bauckham, who wrote Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. But, but Peter Williams really sums it up well in his book. And what he says is there are things that the writers wrote that only local people from that time and that place would have known. Things like the geography so they knew roads went up or roads went down. They they knew how people would travel. And this was not true of the later Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas. Mm. They, it does not show this evidence. But here's the cool thing that they know in there. What happened was Richard Bauckham, the biblical scholar I mentioned uh, just before this, he looked at the frequency of the Jewish names in Israel at the time. So he looked at Josephus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, at ossuaries, at any kind of anything that would mention names. And he compiled all those names and found out what the percentages were, which name was the most popular, and just a list of all the most popular names in order of their popularity so that they, they would have a percentage of the total names. And what he found 
is that when you go through the Gospels and you look at the names, the percentages are extremely close to those percentages that he found from other sources. Hmm. In other words, you see the same percentages of Simon's, of Joseph's, of all of these, especially the top nine names, he says. And what's, what's interesting is that this is only the case in that place. If you look at Jews in other places at the time, the names are different. You don't have the same, the same percentages of names. So somebody who is living in a different time or a different place, there's no way that they would have randomly just made up the right name. Mm. And I'm not even sure if somebody living there would have made up the right names if they were just making it up. And, and, it's, and it gets even better because they also have what are, they have um, identifiers for the most common names. So for people like Simon and, um, and Mary, what they would do is they would add an identifier after it because otherwise you wouldn't know who they were talking about. And I, I don't know if, Surely, when you guys were young in school, there were probably certain names that everybody had. So you had like Michelle M. Or listen, you know, you'd, you'd... I was Ashley A. My whole stinking life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one had my name. I'll say that. <laughs> Child of the well, 80s people, here. People call me Amy Hall. Have called me Amy Hall both names forever <laughs> because they were a zillion Amy. So this is what was happening there. They would add like the father's name or their job or where they were from. So you get Simon Peter, you get Simon the Zealot, you get Mary Magdalene. And this is, it, it matches when you look at who has these identifiers added, it matches the names that were the most popular. So, I mean, this goes on and on. I, I won't go into all the details. I, I do recommend this book, but they, this is true for all four Gospels, and it's not true for the Gnostic Gospels that came later. So um, this is something to me that really points to the idea that these are real eyewitnesses who really existed in a real time, in a real place. So I just wanted to throw that out there because a lot of people haven't heard about that. Yeah, I, I was going to say I haven't, and I really appreciate that because most of the time we attack other resources based on the theology that they present. And here's something concrete that we can go, wait a second, like from a literary perspective, here are the inconsistencies that diminish the reliability of these texts. Yeah. And I love that it, it connects to even the beginning of scripture, this whole like eyewitness, um, this whole eyewitness thing, we're, we're doing Genesis in our women's ministry Bible study right now. And a girl in my uh, group brought up that, um, like, why are we trusting other like kind of theories when it comes to creation when we have an eyewitness God who wrote down, like had Moses write down, we think it's Moses, Moses, right? Did Moses write Genesis? Yeah, that's what we believe. Okay, Moses. Yeah. <laughs> well, whoever that was, I'm this, thinking that was Moses. Look you gave me, like, I was right? like, wait, it's what? Him. I was like, did I? Okay. But that he wrote down like what happened in the beginning and just like that, that even that makes the beginning trustworthy, that there was somebody there, that there's an eyewitness account, somebody, the, the God who created everything is, you know, revealing this to us. And so I love the, just how you brought that up. And I did not know about all those names, but now I want to read that book. Yeah, it's, it's a great book and it's written, it's not a, an academic level book. It's a layperson book. Um, what was the name again? I always get it wrong. Can we trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams? Mm. And it, it's so important uh, that 
for the very reason you said, you know, we trust that, that God knows what he's doing when he says things that we weren't there to see. This is why we, the things that we can verify, we need to understand what those things are so that we are better at trusting God in the things that we cannot verify by our own means, you know? So when we find that the Bible is trustworthy, that enables us to trust in those things that we can't test. Mm, right. But which, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Which does, does bring us to what you were talking about, Ashley, like with our feelings and with, you know, if you're, if you're in the middle of suffering, like, you know, what, what does, why does the Bible's authenticity, like, how does that help us that the Bible is true? So here's, here's what I would say to, um, a woman who was deconstructing and, and, uh, following her feelings or whatever. Um, now what I'm going to say, it, I'm going to kind of circle back around, so stay with me cause I'm going to tie this in. But as women, I think a lot of times it's hard for us to have people angry with us. I think what we like to do is we like to be peacemakers. We like to make people happy. And right now what's happening is a lot of people are angry with Christians. Mm. They really hate Christianity. And this makes us question everything. And what I want to encourage women to do out there is to not judge Christianity by people's anger. If this is something we automatically do, we think things are our fault. We, um, we, we think that, that maybe Christianity is false or it's evil if everybody hates it. But you have to remember that people were angry with Jesus and he did everything right. He did everything right. Everything he said was true. Everything he did was good. And people still hated him. So we cannot expect that we won't have people angry with us. So we can't judge it by people's, by how people hate it. We have to judge it by what is true. And since it's so hard for us to kind of stand up in the face of anger sometimes, we have to have something that's objective and solid that we can hold on to, to remind us that it's not our fault and it's not Christianity's fault that people are mad. Now, okay, there might be some time when, you, when you're not being nice and you're being rude or whatever, but, but leaving that aside, we have to remember that we have to have things that we can keep in mind to remind us that this is worth standing up for and it actually is true and that it's not anything wrong that we've done. So I, I think that is a, an important thing for women in particular to remember. But we are we are so lucky to have this objective standard. This is such a blessing from God. Our mm-hmm. feelings can be all over the place, and there's no stability. There's no safety in our feelings. But when you are convinced that, that what we have from God, his words, that they're true, this can change your life. And, you know, a long time ago, I decided... I was going to submit my, my feelings, my desires, my ideas to the word of God. And no matter what, and I was going to figure out what was going on there. If something didn't make sense to me and I was going to trust it. And I was going to step out in trust with what it said. And now that is scary. Mm. That is really scary. (laughs) And I get that, but I, it has proved solid and I am, I will never be sorry for that. In fact, because of that over time, I've made so many little um, deposits in the bank of the Bible. And by that, I mean, over time, I've spent so much time reading, memorizing, thinking about it, 
And I can see how over the years, this has made such a difference in my life, in my knowledge of God, in protecting me from, from making bad decisions, in knowing God, um, in, you know, just wisdom, all sorts of things. So I just encourage people to do what you have to do to be convinced that it's true and then stand on it. Mm. I love that. It's it's almost like instead of running from the objective standard, we should run to it because it is God's grace to us. He did not leave us to figure this out for ourselves. He has laid this out mm-hmm. clearly. He has uh, He brings clarity to chaos. And so I love even in your own life how you have wrestled with that and how you have felt that. Um, what, what would you say then, Amy, like, okay, it's good to know these things, like these evidences for the Bible's um, authenticity, but how do we like cultivate this apologetic for the accuracy of scripture and yet communicate this to other people in a way that's winsome and loving? Well, okay. So for the first, for the first question, how do you, how do you, you have to get to know what the arguments are and some good places to start the book I mentioned, can we trust the Gospels? Uh, there's cold case Christianity by Jay Warner Wallace. So good. And then I would also recommend, yeah. And I would also, and he just had his, his, um, updated version just came out just a couple of weeks ago. So that would be a great one for people to get. And then the, the case for the resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas, um, is also a good one because though it's not specifically making an argument for the Bible, what it's doing is it's helping you understand that the resurrection really did actually take place in history. And that can help you to, um, to trust the Bible. Yeah. Dr. And then in Dr. Habermas was of, one okay. of my professors. And, and what I love about the way that he approaches this argument is he is only dealing with what the lowest common denominator critic will concede. So he's, he's mm-hmm. not, he's literally saying, okay, what is, how can I use what every scholar agrees on to make the point that the resurrection happened and is true? And so I, I think he has a really compelling way of addressing that argument. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a shorthand. So instead of having to argue for each one of those, yes. those points, you can say, look, these have all conceded it. Can we just start there from that starting point and yeah. see where we end up? So, yeah. And then in terms of being able to communicate it in a winsome way, of course, I recommend uh, my boss, Craig Kokel's book, Tactics. And this book has been so helpful to me over the years. It's, even if you don't have information, it will still help you to have a good conversation. It teaches you questions that you can ask. It's called the Columbo Tactic, where you, you ask certain questions so that you can find out what, where they are. What do they believe? Why do they believe it? Um, so the simple questions are, you ask, uh, what do you mean by that? So if they make a claim, you just have them clarify the claim. And then you, the second question is, how did you come to that conclusion? So then you ask them to provide their evidences. And then the third one is, um, what, what do you think about, or, you know, you kind of challenge them a little bit and ask them to consider something. And that's just a really brief discussion of it. But what happens is it's a way to really be personal in your, in your apologetics. So you can find out what they think, what they believe, why they believe it. And then you can address what their questions are much more personally, rather than just having a set thing that you say for everyone, this helps you to have an actual 
real conversation and help them to examine what they believe and hopefully come to the true belief. Yeah, Greg's verbiage is absolutely phenomenal. Sisters, I cannot recommend enough the Stand to Reason app. He actually has videos that will demonstrate the Columbo approach and then give you um, even more information, like how to apply that if you're talking with someone who's coming from like an Islamic background. Um, and, and so literally, this is something that you can practice. Um, because I think so many of us freeze. We're like, oh, I don't have this language readily available. Practice it. Like, go through those scenarios in your head. Watch the videos on the app. Super, super helpful. And of course, follow them on Instagram because Greg does amazing videos on their Instagram account as well. Yep, that's... Uh, <laughs> I If I could just get everyone to read tactics, I would be so happy. I think we would have so many, so many great conversations happening out there. Ooh. Um, well, I will now be getting the app. Thank you for convincing me, both of you. Um, Amy, we just, we cannot thank you enough for, um, coming on She's Becoming today. We are so thankful for you and your ministry and just for being such a faithful sister in Christ. Um, and so if you haven't gotten your tickets and you're listening, um, the conference is on November 10th and 11th, and ticket prices are going to go up on October 27th. So get your tickets now. We will link everything on our Instagram, too, so that you can just find it from there. But it's also on um, the Grace Church app and website, too, if you want to get tickets. But do you mind if I just pray um, for you, Amy, to end the episode? Sure, but let me say one last thing yeah, quickly. do it. So what I do at the conference, I sit at a table— and it says, ask the apologist, and these students can come up and ask me anything they want. And so if you have a student who's coming, please encourage them. If they have questions, send them up. I will be available. If any of you come and you have questions about evil or suffering or whatever it is, I will be there to answer questions. And I love doing it, and I'm really looking forward to the conference. That's amazing. That. Ask an apologist. Oh, I'm going to write some down. I <laughs> love it. I'll be there. Um <laughs> All right, well, let me just pray for us. Um, Lord, I thank you uh, for this sweet sister. I thank you for the mind that you have given her, um, the communication skills that you have given her, her winsomeness, Lord, that you are just using um, to glorify yourself and for your kingdom, Lord. We are just so thankful for her. Um, I pray that uh, this conference, everything would just go really smoothly. We pray that you would bring a lot of students and adults to this conference, Lord, people that are hungry to know more about you, that have um, questions that they have been wrestling with, and that you would give them um, the answers from your word, God, because we know that there are answers for these hard questions. And I also just pray, Lord, for um, the woman who is listening, who uh, is maybe kind of in this deconstruction or maybe she's questioning her purpose or her meaning in life, Lord. I pray that you would meet her right now where she is at, that you would reveal yourself to her as her savior and that you would imprint this truth on her heart, Lord, that that your word is true, that it is trustworthy and that there is a God who loves her and who does have meaning and purpose for her life, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Amen, Amy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the episode, and we'll see you at the reality conference. I'll see you then.